You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? You can shoot me with your words, you can cut me with your lies, you can kill me with your hatefulness, but just like life, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise. What's up? How's everybody doing today? Good? You guys good? Um, my name is Jody Hickerson, and I have the privilege of coming to The Crossing uh, a few times a year, and it's just always such a privilege for me, such an honor to be here um, with you, to get to worship together. The Crossing is like um, a home away from home for me and for our family as well. We live in Ventura, California, so... Man, it's hot here, you guys. I don't know if you know this. It's so hot here. Uh, I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited to be coming back in November for the Women's Gathering, ladies. So make sure you sign up for that. I'm excited to be back for that in November. Um, but really pumped to kick off this series today called Fierce, where we're looking at the lives of some women in the Bible that lived kind of fierce types of lives that really changed um, the story that they were in, really changed the people around them. But just so you know, during this series, this is not like um, a series that's only for women, right? Because women can learn um, from the lives of men and from men. And men can learn from the lives of women and from women. And so this is an all-skate. Everybody cool with that? It's an all-skate. We're all in this together. And we're going to look at the life, the story, of a portion of this girl's life. And her name is Esther. She's got like a whole book of the Bible about her. If you ever want to read that, just hit the table of contents in your Bible and read about Esther because we're going to fly through um, this book today and her story today and how she stepped into this fierce kind of living. And if I could use one word to describe the book of Esther, it would be drama, okay? There are so much drama in this story. It's got wild parties. It's got beauty pageants, murder conspiracy, like plotting and planning and challenge and egos and, you know, social networking. I mean, there's nothing boring about this girl's story. So since it is such like a dramatic story, what I thought we would do is break it down into some different scenes. So we're going to start this off with scene one of her story, The Hangover, all right, because that's how this story starts. Scene one, chapter one of Esther tells us that there's a king and his name is Xerxes and he's in power over 127 provinces. He is the king of the time of the Persian Empire, which was the most powerful empire in the world, which would make him the most powerful man in the world. Okay, so, and he knew it. And being the most powerful man in the world, he knew how to do a lot of things, including throw a party. Okay, so scene one, chapter one begins with Xerxes just throwing this crazy huge party and like everybody who was anybody was there, right? The nobles, the princes, military leaders, like, you know, you got this special invite to this party and it was all out awesome. For a full 180 days, it says, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty, right? You think you pull some all-nighters. This party that Xerxes threw in honor of himself lasted 180 days. Like half the year they're just partying and he's showing off his wealth. 
And if that wasn't enough, when that party was over, he throws another seven-day party there right in the citadel of Susa. And at the seven-day party, the week-long party, there are no limits on drinking. Okay, so typically you could drink when the king had a toast, not this week. This week, everybody can have as much as they wanted. And so they did. And on the last day of the event, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, might be an understatement after a 186-day kegger, um, but he sent some men to go get his queen, Vashti, and to bring her out. He wants to see his queen wearing the royal crown. And many believe wearing only the royal crown because he wanted the nobles and all the other men just to gaze on her beauty. She was a very beautiful woman. Well, Queen Vashti was not down with that, okay? So they go to get her and she refuses. She's like, I'm not doing that. He's drunk. I'm not going to be about this. And this made the king furious. And he burned with anger. So he went to his advisors to figure out what to do with Queen Vashti for disobeying his order, for being so disrespectful to him, for not doing exactly what he wanted when he wanted. And they said, well, maybe you just should banish Vashti and also let the king just give her royal position to someone else, someone who is better than she. So they're like, hey, man, you could do better. So they proposed, like, this is what we should do. We should have a search. Like, let's round up. All the beautiful young virgins in every province of your entire realm, let's bring them all together. Then we'll give them beauty treatments. And then the girl that pleases the king the most will be made queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king. You think? Okay. And so he followed it. Which brings us to scene two, The Bachelor. Because we've got all of these beautiful young women, these beautiful young virgins being rounded up and they're brought to one place, the citadel of Susa. I mean, I can only imagine how many there were after the crown, but there was only one rose. And before a girl's turn came to go into the King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil and myrrh and six with perfume and cosmetics. They spent a year getting ready for this date, okay? That is a long time. And this isn't like extended spa treatment. Some of you are going, man, that sounds amazing. Six months of oil and myrrh. Like, let's, let's do this. No, this was highly competitive. Just imagine the situation with all of these young girls in one place, all getting their beauty treatments, all wanting the same crown. I mean, think about the jealousy, the competition, the comparison going on. This was like, this was made for reality TV. And among these women was our girl, Esther. She was a Jewish orphan girl who had been raised by her cousin, Mordecai. So her cousin, Mordecai, is this Jewish man, and he had been taken captive from Jerusalem under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, but now he's just kind of one of many displaced Jewish people. Like, they're no longer in captivity at this point in history, but they're just not at home anywhere. They're just kind of all scattered throughout the region, and I like Mordecai. I love how it tells us how he cares for his cousin. It tells us in um, verse 7 that when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her. He adopted Esther into his family. And he raised her as his own daughter. And then after she's been taken to the bachelor pad, it says that every day Mordecai would just take a walk, you know, kind of getting near the courtyard, trying to overhear some things to find out about Esther to see what was happening to her. He loved her. He cared about her. He wanted to protect her. 
And so that's why he tells her, hey, when you get in there, if you want a shot at winning this thing, just keep, like, your Jewish heritage a secret, okay? Because that's not going to win you any points in, like, the interview round. Just kind of keep that on the DL. Don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. And so she does. And of all the beautiful young women brought to Susa, tells us that Esther, just as she was, won the admiration of everyone who saw her, including the king. It had been four years since he had banished Vashti, four years. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of women he could have chosen to be queen, but it was Esther who won his favor. And so he set the royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. At the end of the day, because isn't this how God does it sometimes? Esther, the Jewish orphan girl raised by her displaced cousin, probably the most unlikely, won the rose, stepped into the position. Scene three. Criminal minds. Okay, so unlike Cinderella, this does not end with like, and they lived happily ever after. Um, no, the plot kind of thickens for our or orphan girl turned queen. Um, there are a few criminal minds in this story. One's name is Bigthena, one's name is Teresh, one's name is Haman. And interestingly enough, Mordecai, her cousin, ends up being the lead undercover investigator in each of these cases. Okay, so Mordecai has this job, and his job is at the king's gate. And one day at the king's gate, he overhears two of the king's guards, Bigthana and Teresh, plotting to assassinate the king. And he's like, wow, this sounds like more than just grumbling about your boss. This sounds legit. Like, this sounds like they might actually be plotting to assassinate the king. So he goes and he reports all that he heard to Esther. Esther reports it to the king, giving Mordecai all of the credit. An investigation starts, and it finds out this is true. Like, these guys really were plotting to assassinate the king, and so they lost their lives. And this was all recorded, it tells us in verse 23, in the book of history of Xerxes' reign. We'll come back to that, but just so you know, they wrote down the whole case file. Then there was the criminal mind of Haman. Okay, and Haman is such a villain in this story. Can we all just boo for a minute on Haman? Boo, yes, Haman is such a villain. And he's an inside guy, you know, like most villains. He's like the right-hand man of, of the king. He's the highest-ranking official. In fact, his position is so high that when he passes by other officials all day long, they all bow down to him. Except for this one man, this Jewish man named Mordecai, who stands at the king's gate and believes in bowing only to the one true God. And so he refuses to bow to Haman. Well, this every day makes Haman just furious. And so he decides to do something about it. He gets so filled with rage that he learns of Mordecai's nationality. Like what's making him stand up? And so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, they cast lots. Like they rolled the dice to see what would be a good day on the calendar to annihilate the Jewish people. And they landed on March 7th, almost a year later. You know, look like a good day, schedule's free. He goes to Haman, Haman goes to the king and he's like, hey, here's the day I'm thinking about doing something with this certain group of people that are in all of your provinces and they're just scattered throughout the region and they keep separate laws and they worship a different God. They don't really belong with us. And so the king says, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. And so later that week on April 17th, a decree is written and it's translated into the language of each province and it's sent out with messengers to deliver it, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, 
would be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. And this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. Can you imagine? I mean, this is horrific. This is an evil plan from the mind of an evil man. I mean, think about what it would have been like for the Jewish people to have these messengers come into town with some news. And on the front page it read, hey, on March 7th, every one of you, young and old, men and women, children will be killed. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a date on the calendar? 11 months to anticipate not only your death, but the death of everyone close to you. Well, as the news spread, the Jewish people began to weep and they began to wail and they covered themselves in burlap and in ashes, which was the traditional manner of just like crying out to God, humbling themselves before God going, please God, hear us. Please God, intercede on our behalf. And when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he too tore his clothes and put on burlap and ashes and went out into the city crying with this loud and bitter wail. Well, when the news of Mordecai weeping and wailing and burlap and ashes reaches up to the palace to Esther, she sends a messenger named Hattach to go find out, like, what's going on with her dear cousin? What's going on with her adopted father? And so Mordecai relays the whole story to this messenger, tells Esther everything that's going down, and then he also asks Hattach to direct her. You go to the king and you beg for mercy and plead for your people. And Esther hears it all. And she digests it all. And she sent back a reply that went something like this. You have got to be kidding me, okay? I cannot. I can't do that. Don't you know that going to the king uninvited is against the law? And in case you forgot, Mordecai, that's punishable by death. So you're asking me just to risk my life. You're asking me just to walk in there and risk my life. This is against the law. It's punishable by death. The only exception is if when he sees me, he holds out his gold scepter. But then she tells her cousin, I don't see that happening. Like, we've been married for five years and he hasn't asked for me in 30 days, if you know what I'm saying. That's what she says. She's like, things aren't good on the home front. Like, it's not a really good time for me just to go, hey, I've had the secret heritage. I haven't told you about. Um, and so I'm bringing that to you now. She's like, this is crazy. This is too risky. This is too much to ask. And she had to believe that her answer would be sufficient. The Mordecai would be like, oh, you're right. Gosh, I didn't think about that. I forgot it was punishable by death. That is too risky. Let's not do that. No, instead, Mordecai sends this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Not what Esther's expecting to hear. Mordecai is reminding her that although she's the queen and she's living that plush palace life, you know, she's got the walk-in closet and the name brand clothes, this decree applies to her. And even if she somehow like escapes it and nobody knows about her, those closest to her will not. And he says, would you find some courage? Don't back down. Don't take the easy way out. Step into this. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. You see, what I'm learning in my own life is that the opposite of courage, it's not fear because we all get afraid and we all feel fearful. 
The opposite of courage is self-preservation. It's just wanting to shield ourselves, guard ourselves, protect ourselves, keep our little lives comfortable. Dr. Karen H. Jones said this about Esther. She said she had to overcome herself in order to do what God had created her and positioned her to do. She had to overcome herself. Anybody else been there? You see, we can cower away from our calling. We can refuse to listen to God. We can ignore the stirrings in our spirit. We can just say, I can't do that. And God is still God, and he's still going to accomplish his agenda. Right? Just like Mordecai said, if you don't do this, I believe God will help will arise from some other place. But what happens is we miss out on what we were created and positioned to do. And those closest to us miss out on the incredible work that God wanted to do in and through our lives. He says, step in. Erwin McManus puts it this way. He says, if you wait for guarantees, the only thing that will be guaranteed is that you will miss endless divine opportunities. We all want miracles, and then we spend our lives avoiding the context in which miracles happen. And we need to take some courage. And if you're a new parent, maybe you're a brand new parent, or you're a foster parent, or you're a parent of an elementary kid, or a middle school child, or a high school student. Listen, I got... I got one middle schooler and two high schoolers, and they're all girls. I get it. It's scary, okay? It's, there's a lot of uncertainty, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it feels really real, and sometimes it feels like I just want to back out of this. Listen, don't take a step back. Don't back out. Don't take the easy way out. You step in. You are created and positioned. You are, you are that parent for that boy, for that girl, for that student. For such a time as this, it is where God has put you. And if you are a boss or you're a business owner, you've got people that report to you and you know that you could handle business a different way and it would make things a lot less uncertain. Or you could handle employees a certain way and it would make people respect you a whole lot more and not, not have nearly as much of the fallout. But you know that's not God's plan, God's way. Listen, don't settle for that kind of leadership. You step in. You step into where God has positioned you. You are the man, you are the woman, you are that business leader, that boss for such a time as this. And if you are in middle school or high school, or you're a college student in the room, and you know that God has been after your heart, he's been pursuing you, and he's asking you to follow him with all that you've got, and to stand up for him, and to stand strong, and to help others find hope, and you know that comes with ridicule the second you walk back into your school. Listen, step into that. Don't back away. Don't back down. Don't hold back. Step into where God has positioned you because you are that student at that school, in those hallways, in that classroom, on that campus, with that teacher, with those friends, at that table, at that cafeteria, for such a time as this. God has positioned you there. Listen, maybe you've been sensing for a while now that God has been stirring something in you and he's asking you to step into it. And really you're like, I just don't, I think the timing's a little off. It might make things a little uncomfortable. It seems a little too risky. I don't, I don't really know if God would really want me to do that because it seems like there's too much risk involved. Listen, don't cower away from that calling. If God is speaking to you, stirring in your heart, pay attention. Don't think for a second that God wouldn't ask something risky of you. He would. 
And who knows? You just might be the man. You just might be the woman for such a time as this. You see, courage is a choice. Esther had a choice, which brings us to scene four, brave heart. After hearing Mordecai's message and what he had to say, there's this, like this shift in Esther. You know, and she's about to do something fierce. And so she sends a message to Mordecai saying, have all of the Jewish people fast for me and pray for me for three days. And let's not underestimate the importance of having some people who will pray for you when you need some courage. When you're about to step out into something. She says, have them pray. And then when that is done, she says, I will go to the king. Even though it's against the law. Like it's still against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And talk about a shift. She makes this choice to be courageous. This choice to trust that maybe God had made her queen for such a time as this. Maybe God had created her and positioned her for something more than just the palace. And in five tiny verses, she goes from, oh, no, this is too big of an ask. I could never do that. That's life or death. That seems crazy. To, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. She could have chickened out. She could have stayed comfortable in her royal room. She could have just like stayed safe and let it all play out and just see what would happen, but she didn't. And no matter how many opportunities you might have missed, no matter how inadequate or underqualified you might feel, no matter how much of your life you think you've already lived in self-preservation mode, you too may be one brave decision away from the most important turn on your entire path. Because our stories can change too. We can become a fierce kind of people as we lean in to God's power. Esther said those powerful words in verse 16. She said, well, if I perish, then I perish. And kind of using that sentence, I want us to fill in our own blanks. It looks like this. If blank, then blank. This was an exercise I did several years ago um, in a Bible study that was written by Beth Moore that helped me so much with my perspective on the things that I fear. So think about this, like if blank, if blank happens in that first blank, put one of your fears. It could be your worst fear if blank happens. It could be a current fear, like it's what you're facing right now, like it's real right now. Maybe it's the reoccurring fear that just keeps popping up. But whatever fear that is, put it in that first blank. And let me tell you what our enemy wants us to think about that fear. He wants it to mess with us. He wants us to focus on it. He wants us to start to believe, man, if, if blank happened, I would just be done. If blank happened, there'd be no way I could recover. If blank happened, I don't know what I would do. There'd be no getting back up if blank happened. You got any of those fears? I've got a few of those fears where I have thought, man, if blank happened, I might just end up in my room in the fetal position crying for months. Like, I, I don't know if I can recover if blank happens. But listen, if we believe that, if we believe that if our fears came to be that we would just be done, then we put conditional trust on a God who is bigger than our blank. You see, we can't just trust him to help us avoid what we fear. We trust him even if blank happens, right? We trust him no matter what. That's why we put him in that second blank. If blank, then God. 
If my worst fear happens, then God. He will be enough for me. He will pull me out of that bedroom. He will stand me back up. He will wipe my tears away. He will sustain me. He will be my strength. He will be all that he says he is and do all that he's promised to do. If my blank happens, I may be hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but never abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because my God is bigger than my blank, and I can trust him. I can trust him. If blank. Then God, Esther had resolved, man, she's not done, which brings us to scene five, pardon the interruption, right? So Mordecai had told her what to do, you go to the king, but he hadn't told her how to do it. In fact, what he had said is go to the king and beg, go to the king and plead for mercy. But what we see in this scene five is that Esther gets all dressed in the royal robes. You see, she doesn't come to the king as a beggar. She doesn't get dressed in her negligee. She doesn't come to him as a member of his harem or even his wife. She comes in fierce. She comes in as the person that God has created her and positioned her to be at this time, the queen of the Persian Empire. And she starts walking down that hall, knowing that in every step she's getting closer to the king seeing her, knowing that it's against the law and punishable by death. Can you imagine walking down that hallway? I bet she thought, if I stop for a minute... I'm out of here. I'm, I'm running the other way, right? But she didn't. She just kept putting one foot in front of the other foot. And maybe that's the thing that God brought you here to hear, brought you here today to hear this morning is that you just keep walking. You may not know how it turns out, but you just keep putting one foot in front of the other foot, in front of the other foot, trusting Him. As she comes into view, the guards are there. Man, they know she's breaking the law. They're ready to draw their swords, and the king stops them. And he holds out his gold scepter. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is it that you want? Ask, and it is yours. And she says, if it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, remember our villain, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. And so the king's like, okay, he calls for Haman. They go to this lunch that Esther has prepared for them. And there again, the king looks at her and he says, what is it that you want, Queen Esther? Ask, and it is yours. And Esther's all like, how about we do this tomorrow? Like, I'll make another banquet, and you and Haman come back, and we'll have another banquet tomorrow. And the king's like, okay, I guess we'll do this again tomorrow. And the tension is kind of building. And there are lots of thoughts of why Esther didn't ask the king for what she wanted in that first banquet. Some people think she just chickened out. Like, she's like, I can't do this. Other people think she's like, man, the king's in a bad mood. You know, I'll wait till tomorrow. Um, some think she was brilliant and she was trying to make the king jealous. Like, why does she keep inviting Haman to our luncheons? Like, that's kind of weird. Whatever the reason. Esther leaves this banquet walking in courage for the next day. The king leaves the banquet intrigued. Like, what does she want? But Haman, our villain... He leaves this banquet on cloud nine. Y'all, he is so puffed up about having this banquet with the king and queen. It says he leaves happy and in high spirits. But all of that changed and his whole day was ruined when he had to walk by Mordecai the Jew at the king's gate who won't bow down to him. So he goes home, he calls all of his friends, he gets his wife together, and he's just bragging. He's like, man, I was the only one the queen invited, and I had, to, I had this to drink, and I had this to eat, and it was so awesome. But then my day was ruined when I had to walk past Mordecai the Jew. 
at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh and all his friends, they're like over it. They're like, hey, how about you do this? Have a gallows built 75 feet high. And then just go ask the king in the morning to have this Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and just be happy. And this suggestion delighted Haman. And he right then, that evening, he's like, let's get some gallows built. Scene six, sleepless in Susa. Okay, that night, the king has trouble sleeping. And so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of history of his reign. Y'all remember this? So it could be read to him. Okay, so the king is having trouble sleeping. He needs a bedtime story. Um, he would prefer it be one all about him. So he's like, read me the book, you know, about my reign, all about me. Okay, guess what account is, is read? It's the one about Mordecai saving the king's life from those two guards who are plotting to kill him. And so the king, he asked the attendant who was reading, what reward or recognition did we ever give this Mordecai for this? Well, none, they said. Nothing was ever done for him. Then the king heard someone in the outer court. Like, it's morning now, and, and the king hears someone. He says, who's in the court? Well, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Okay, this is good stuff, you guys. It's all coming together here. So the king looks at Haman. He's like, oh, man, my right-hand guy, my inside dude, you would know the answer. What should I do for someone that I want to honor? And Haman thinks, who would the king want to honor besides me? He's like, you got to get the king's horse, you know, the royal crest, get the noblest of princes to take him through town and said, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king is like, excellent. Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. And so Haman had to do it. I wish I could have been there. Man, that would have been awesome. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. So we're going to name our next scene after him, scene seven, the biggest loser, okay? So Haman is dejected. He's humiliated. His plan is coming unraveled. He goes to the second banquet that Esther has prepared for him and the king. And while they are sitting there, the king looks across at Esther and says, what is it that you want? Ask and it's yours. And with all the fierceness she can muster, she says, if I have found favor with you, grant me this. Spare my life. Spare my people. For we have been sold for destruction, slaughter, and annihilation. And the king says, who? Where is the man who would do such a thing? And Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Well, the king gets up in a rage, right? This is his highest ranking official, his inside guy. He's never seen a season of 24. He can't believe, you know, that he got tricked into this whole thing. So he has to go out to the palace garden to cool off. And while he's out there, Haman begins to beg Esther for his life. And in his despair, he falls on the couch where Queen Esther is reclining just as the king is returning from the palace garden. Okay, this sends the king over the top. He's like, get off my wife, okay? He even says, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in my own house? Like, not looking good for Haman. And one of the attendants that's standing nearby is like, you know what I saw on the way to work this morning? A gallows. 75 feet high. It stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. I mean, come on. That is absolutely unreal. And it brings us 
to our final scene, scene eight heroes. On that same day, the king gave Esther all of Haman's estate, and Esther placed Mordecai over it. But because the king had signed the edict against the Jews, he could not revoke it. So he had Mordecai issue a new decree that stated, and it was sent out with messengers to all the provinces, that the Jewish people on March 7th could assemble to protect themselves. They could fight back against any armed force, nationality, or province that might attack, attack them. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. And on that day, the enemies of the Jews who had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. See, scene eight is called Heroes, and it's an amazing story. And while Esther and Mordecai both display some incredible heroics, the real hero of this story is never mentioned. It's one of the coolest, most intriguing things about the book of Esther as you begin to study it. God's name is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. But don't confuse God's name not being in it with God not being in it. Because God is all over this story. And just like with every great drama, behind the scenes there is a writer, a producer, a director who knows every scene, is involved in every line, is in complete control of the story, and J.J. Abrams has got nothing on our God. Okay, could it just so happen that Queen Vashti is banished at the exact time when Esther's the right age to be chosen for tryouts? Could it just so happen that the Jewish nation would face annihilation when their queen happened to be secretly Jewish? Could it just so happen that while a plot is being carried out to kill Mordecai, the king has a sleepless night and his bedtime story is about Mordecai? Could it just so happen that all of this would take place when the Jewish nation was scattered and displaced, that they would come together again and be strong? No, that doesn't just so happen. That's God. That is God working behind the scenes and everything. And I believe he chose to inspire this book without his name ever being mentioned in it so that we, you and me, could take courage. You see, maybe you've been through a season of your life where while you're going through it, you can't see God. You don't see how he's working. You can't see what he's doing. And now when you look back at that season, man, you see his hand all over it. And you know he was at work behind the scenes and everything. Or it could be that you're going through something right now and for the life of you, you can't figure out where God is, where his involvement is. I believe he gave us this book inspired in this way so that we would know that even when we can't see him on the page, he is there. He is with you. He's not going to leave you, and he is working everything out. Listen, you want to live a fierce life. We want to live a fierce kind of life and make a difference. It begins with knowing this. We don't have to be the hero. The hero is always and already at work. We just have to be willing to say yes to the role he's asking us to play for such a time as this. And God, I thank you. I thank you that we are created on purpose for a purpose, every single one of us. And God, I thank you that you have positioned us where we're at right now. And that God, we could step into that with the boldness of knowing we don't have to be the hero. The hero's at work. We just have to be willing to take the next step, trusting you all the way.
We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.